Fraud is a rising threat, and we as accountants must defend against it. Airbase is the leading procure-to-pay solution with unparalleled fraud protection that will help you safeguard your client's business finances from fraud. Stay tuned to hear more from our sponsor, Airbase, later in the episode. On the one hand, it's pretty hilarious and fun that a super rich white American windbag would be the person to disrupt a fusty, glacially paced sport like cricket, pissing off a bunch of distinguished British people in the process. But on the other hand, it's all too perfect and predictable that this super rich windbag ended up being, in the words of one writer, a garden variety sociopath and also an evil doofus behind a $7 billion Ponzi scheme. If you'd like to earn CPE credit for listening to this episode, visit earmarkcpe.com. Download the app, take a short quiz, and get your CPE certificate. Continuing education has never been so easy. And now, on to the episode. This is Oh My Fraud, a true crime podcast where the criminals commit economic homicide instead of plain old homicide. I'm Caleb Newquist. And I'm Greg Kite. Greg, I have a housekeeping item uh, before we get into the show. A correction, to be precise. Oh, well, that is very exciting uh, because... A, I don't believe we've ever done a correction before, and B, I also have a correction uh, that we need to to get out there to the people. How delightful. Um, Okay, I'll I'll go first, and I'll I'll make this pretty quick. Uh, In episode 49 about the Roslyn School District, I said that my celebrity doppelganger, Anthony Rapp, I said that he played Roger in the musical Rent, and that is wrong. He played Mark Cohen. And I got a nice email from a listener correcting me about that. And he said there were likely some apoplectic theater nerds out there reacting to this error. So I'm happy to take full responsibility for the mistake and set the record straight for those theater nerds. And it's also in the show notes. So there you there you go. There you go. Theater nerds. The other correction was actually brought to our attention by listener Clayton, who informed us that in episode 53, we referred to the DJ with the big mouse head as modest mouse when it is, in fact, dead mouse. Uh, clearly, our ignorance with regard to both musical theater and electronic house music rivals our ignorance of United States and world geography. Indeed. So, Greg. Moving on. I, I'm just glad we got that off our chest. Yeah, I, I feel better, don't you? Yeah, we don't want, we don't want angry people listening to, the, to right, the podcast. That's exactly right. Come on. Yeah. Yeah. So, Greg, I am curious. Do you have any experience with offshore banking? Uh I mean, I've got like 10 different accounts in various Bahamian islands. Um, but apart oh. from that, not none at all. No, oh, okay. No, no, actually, uh really I don't have any experience whatsoever with like i barely even understand offshore banking and as a matter of fact preparing for this episode was probably i still feel like i have a very light grasp on what what it is (laughs) yeah okay so i so yeah i i was joking i never i've never had an offshore bank account uh i have as far as anyone knows (laughs) <laughs> which is of course which is kind of the whole point of offshore bank accounts is the whole thing is it's like it's a place to keep your money secret so if Indeed. i did have experience with offshore banking i sure as hell wouldn't tell you or our listening audience that i had offshore bank accounts and right as far as i know i don't know anyone with offshore bank accounts but then again maybe that's just the offshore bank accounts doing what they're supposed to do by making sure i don't know that those people have offshore bank accounts right that makes perfect sense to me yeah. So, but if I was to try to like pinpoint the closest brush that I possibly had with okay. offshore banking, uh, All back, right. back in the late 1990s, I got a job as a car salesman. Yeah. I was selling Mitsubishis and Subarus at Barber Brothers okay. Mitsubishi Subaru in Orem, Utah. The owner of the dealership, he was a, he was a friend of mine, uh, also part of the leadership team at the church that I was going to, I believe he was an elder of our church. Um, that's how I knew him was through church. Uh, he gave me the job. He was clearly making plenty of money uh, through his car dealership. And he and his family would regularly vacation uh, in the Cayman Islands, which is well known for offshore banking. 
And it was hard for me not to wonder if this respectable elder at my church <laughs> was also maybe doing something shady. But if he was, he was probably paying 10% on it. So that's cool. But right, of on, course. But on the other hand, uh, maybe he's just going because the Cayman Islands, they're a beautiful tropical island paradise. Indeed. All right. This episode is about a small town Texas guy who became a billionaire building an offshore banking empire. He lived large, told a lot of stories, and had a famous last name, Stanford. As in Stanford and Son. No. Robert Allen Stanford grew up in Mejia, Texas, population 6,893, according to the 2020 census. Mejia is located in Limestone County. That's about an hour and a half south of Dallas and 45 minutes east of Waco. And as we said earlier, our geography, particularly Texas geography, can be suspect. But I'm feeling pretty good about Mejia. I think we got it. Um, but yeah, still, we, if you we want got, to verify. We got our little... Please, uh, our Please little uh, cartography uh, tools out to make sure we got that one right. Right. Yeah. So a couple of uh, items of note about Mejia, Texas. Yes, it is pronounced Mejia, named after Jose Antonio Mejia, a Mexican hero for the Republic of Texas Army during the Texas Revolution. And for our listeners, the, the it's spelled M-E-X-I-A, but it's pronounced Mejia. Mejia. Yeah. Yeah. And this pronunciation issue has been enough of a problem over the years that the town's motto is, and I am not kidding, the town's motto is a great place no matter how you pronounce it. <laughs> there you go. I mean, kudos, Mejia. Yeah. Nice. Well nicely done. done. Well done. Yeah. I, I want the t-shirt. But back to Alan Stanford. His family was of some renown in Mejia. His grandfather, Lotus Stanford, founded an insurance company in 1932, uh, you know, Depression era. Yeah. And that helped start building his family fortune. Alan's father, James, worked with Lotus in the insurance business and later became mayor of Mejia and served on its city council. Alan's mother, Sammy, meanwhile, came from a working class family and didn't meet the expectations of her mother-in-law at all. So for those of you listening... In similar circumstances. Right. <laughs> Those of you who have mothers-in-law. <laughs> yeah. You're like, oh, yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah. Ergo, Alan's parents divorced when he was nine. <laughs> and his mother moved to Fort Worth where Alan graduated from high school. Okay. So from there, the legend of Alan Stanford, as told by Alan Stanford, begins at Baylor University where he majored in finance and played football on a scholarship. Stanford started his first business, a gym, in Waco. He expanded the business too quickly, however, and it went bankrupt in 1982. Two years later, he and his wife filed for bankruptcy with more than $13 million in debt and only $229,000 in assets, which is quite a spread, if I may say. So Stanford and his wife, little money trouble, but after declaring bankruptcy over the next decade, he would turn things around. He got into business with his dad, James, who was then running the family insurance and real estate business. And that business was called Stanford Financial Group. And when the price of oil crashed in the 1980s, Texas real estate, as many people know, Texas real estate followed and the Stanfords bought up a lot of distressed property. Prices eventually recovered and the Stanfords made a fortune uh, by all accounts, hundreds of millions of dollars. And Alan took over from his dad when James retired in 1993. So during these heady years, Alan had spent a lot of time in the Caribbean, 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 I think Caribbean, Caribbean. Let's go with Caribbean. The only time you say Caribbean is if you're at Disneyland or Disney World. Oh. Other than that, it's the Caribbean. That makes perfect sense. To yeah. Me. <laughs> okay. Anyway, he's spending time in the Caribbean, recruiting investors and customers for his business, and he was able to raise so much money that he opted to recruit a friend from Baylor, a guy by the name of Jim Davis. And Jim joined the business, put in a bunch of money, and together they started Guardian International Bank on the island of 
Montserrat. Am I saying that right? I'm going to say you are, but also it might be French, and I don't know how to pronounce ah. it. I pronounce any French words. Yes. I, then in that case, it might be Montserrat. Montserrat. Yeah. Uh, that's my best guess. Should and we go hard, so- hard, hard American pronunciation? Yeah, I say well, let's go hard American. Montserrat. Montserrat. Okay. Let's even put, you Got can maybe put a little Texas on it. Here in the sure. island of Montserrat. That's totally how he would say it. I think so. That's how I think that's how Alan Stanford would say it. Yes. <laughs> anyway, uh, so they started Guardian International Bank on the island of Montserrat in 1985. Now, how do a couple of good old boys, American dudes, start an offshore bank in Montserrat? I got no fucking idea. No Greg, clue. do you have any idea? Zero idea how you yeah. start a, an offshore bank in a foreign country. But you know what? Just they did it. Just accept okay. it. They did yeah. the thing. Now, <laughs> but according to uh, a, a 2009 Texas Monthly profile on Stanford, quote, what happened next is subject of some debate. And which, it's, this is so wild. I love this. So uh, it's fantastic. Anytime that you have to preface something with that. Yeah. Is <laughs> subject of debate. Yeah. It's going to be exciting. Yes. So here we go. Quote, perhaps Montserrat changed its banking laws or Stanford drew the attention of the IRS or he got into a fight over a woman or a hurricane wiped out much of the island or maybe all of those things happened. Ian Moncrief Scott, a financial writer who has covered Caribbean corruption for several decades, claims that the British government was asked by the Montserrat authorities to force him to leave, which it did. Whatever the case, Stanford arrived in Antigua in 1991. This time, he named the bank after himself. Yes, my friends, Stanford International Bank was just getting started. Antigua and Sir Allen were made for each other, wrote Mimi Schwartz in Texas Monthly. One writer who was steeped in Antiguan corruption told her, You are used to Texas-style chicanery, which can be both big and bold, but you've never seen anything like Stanford's influence in Antigua. So, Alan Stanford, his approach was pretty simple, uh, because he did this in Montserrat too, did it again in Antigua. He ingratiated himself with the local people, in this case it was Antigua's politicians, did them favors, and then asked for big favors in return. Uh, This gave him near total control over many things in the country, and he would make extravagant shows of generosity, which also further indebted people to him. For example, Caleb. Pretty pretty classic approach, I would say. Wouldn't you, Greg? I I don't know, because I've never tried to take over an island in the Caribbean before. Financially or otherwise, when you put put it that way, then yeah, maybe. But but no, but yeah, if you're if you're trying to gain influence over people, yeah, you yes, you ingratiate your people, you make them feel indebted to you, and then you're like, I need need favors back, and you know, it's it's a it's sort of social power plays. So yeah, yeah, in that case, absolutely. Um, Here's one example of of his his uh, his chicanery, as uh, Mimi Schwartz called it. In 1996, Antigua's then prime minister, his name was Lester Byrd, asked Stanford to clean up the country's banking laws. Uh, you know, no big deal. Just asking a, just asking some guy, <laughs> asking hey, a banker, hey, to clean up the banking right. rules. I, I mean, you know, I, and somebody who who has had just vast experience by having one other bank that got him driven out of the country. So yeah, <laughs> ask that guy. It's like, hey, yep. can you tighten these up for us? And he's like, cool. I can. And I'd then be they're happy like, to. Right, right. It'd be my pleasure. And then Prime Minister Lester Byrd also asked uh, Alan Stanford if he could lobby the United States for a better relationship uh, for Antigua. And yeah, Alan Stanford was more than happy to do both clean up the banking laws and help lobby for a better relationship with Antigua. A 2009 New Yorker article written by writer Alec Wilkinson reported that Stanford Financial Group spent nearly $5 million on lobbying the United States over 10 years on issues around money laundering, financial services, and banking. All stuff that plays nicely into somebody who runs his own offshore bank. 
By the year 2000, Stanford International Bank had over $800 million in assets, and it had taken over the Bank of Antigua, uh, which was pretty perfect for Alan Stanford because that basically made him the only lender in town, or to put it a bit more precisely, to put a little finer point on it, he was the only lender in the country. So again, that's a, Caleb, that's an enviable position to be in, wouldn't you say, Greg? Yeah. Well, also, it, it puts you in a pretty powerful position because absolutely, if yeah. you're the only lender in the country, people need loans. So everybody's kind of going to be polishing your butt to to make sure that you'll give them the loans, and you know they're they're literally indebted to you. <laughs> so yes, that's yes. Uh, yeah. Not a not a not a bad not a bad place to be for somebody seeking some leverage in the world. But it's interesting too because the accounts that we read show that Stanford had this kind of mythological quality to him in Antigua. Uh, one story goes that he airlifted a stigmatic priest to the U.S. for medical treatment. Uh, but just to just to make sure we don't have to do more corrections in the future, we just want to be very, very abundantly clear that it, it's unclear as to whether there's any truth to any of that story at all. This episode of Oh My Fraud is sponsored by Airbase. Airbase is procure-to-pay software with unparalleled fraud protection. Airbase provides real-time alerts, anomaly detection, and customizable multi-level approvals to identify potentially fraudulent charges before they happen. When you use Airbase, you'll never fall victim to falsified vendor details thanks to automated notifications of any bank account changes because they always require your approval to update. Airbase allows you to safeguard your corporate cards by setting dynamic spending limits and locking cards with one click if a card becomes compromised. Additionally, Airbase's vendor-specific virtual card numbers mean you'll never waste time replacing compromised physical cards. And beyond unparalleled defense, Airbase centralizes global spend management, streamlining workflows by syncing transaction data with top accounting tools like NetSuite, Intact, and QuickBooks for efficient reconciliation. Simplify financial operations, stop fraud in its tracks, and ensure charge validity with Airbase, the all-in-one platform securing and optimizing your business finances. For a personalized demo of Airbase's complete financial solution, securing and streamlining your firm and clients, head over to ohmyfraud.promo slash Airbase. That's ohmyfraud.promo forward slash A-I-R-B-A-S-E. So moving on to many people in Antigua. Alan Stanford was just this super rich, super shady guy who liked to throw his weight and his money around. Uh, in the New Yorker article that we talked about before, uh, for example, there's a story of a writer who allegedly depicted Stanford as a money launderer involved in the drug trade. Uh, Stanford sued the writer, settled the case out of court, and the newspaper agreed to, quote, publish a front page apology to print twice as many copies of the issue as usual and to deliver a hundred copies of it to Stanford and to pay for his legal fees. That's like, that's just rubbing their nose in it. Is That is print yeah, twice I mean, as I, You're not going to sell them, but you have to print twice as many copies and then you just got to eat. All of those extra, except for a hundred of those, which right. you need to personally deliver to me and put on my desk along with my morning latte, uh, and you know what I get from Starbucks. That's what. It, yeah, it seems like a very Devil Wears Prada sort of move. Yeah, I mean, it's um, uh, let's let's give credit where credit's due. It seems like St Alan Stanford knew how to enjoy some retribution. Oh, okay, yeah, that's another way to say it. Another yeah. way to say. What were you it. gonna say? Was it, he was a dick? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yes. He's either he's either a connoisseur of the fine art of ret retribution or a fucking dickhead. <laughs> right, right, exactly. <laughs> so another I, I, another thing that was notable, possibly most notable from this period in the uh, Alan Stanford saga, uh, at least for our our purposes, is when Stanford International Bank 
paid over $3 million to the drug enforcement agency because a Mexican drug cartel was laundering money through its account. So no wonder. I hate it when that happens. I hate it God, when you, hate when it when you when just happens. settle the lawsuit for somebody saying that you were a money launderer and involved with drug cartels. And then immediately after that, you have to pay $3 million because you're laundering money for drug cartels. But at least you got those 100 newspapers. Hey, unbeknownst to me, Greg Kite... <laughs> Is I'm um, speaking as Alan Stanford, <laughs> right? Exactly. I of course, is <laughs> somehow that got through the cracks. There were whispers of more money laundering going on at Stanford's offshore bank. What during this time? <laughs> but nothing ever came of all of that. Uh, but all this controversy did nothing to stop the further endearment of Alan Stanford to the island of Antigua on November first of two thousand six. Alan Stanford was appointed. Knight Commander of the Order of the Nation of Antigua and Barbuda by the Antiguan government. And after that, naturally, he insisted that people refer to him as Sir Allen. Let me tell you something about this guy, Alan Stanford. He liked being rich. (laughs) (laughs) And I mean, as far as billionaires go, he wasn't near the top. Okay, he peaked on the Forbes list in 2008 at 205 with 2.2 billion. But I have to say, and there's no official ranking on this, but he has got to be top 10, top 20 when it comes to billionaire showboats. Here are several examples of that. First, he parked his yacht, Sea Eagle, right next to the Antigua airport, quote, so that he could fly in and be on the water in minutes. Because, you know, when you, you got to be Super on a boat, important. you got to be on a boat. Can't, can't stand being on land. <laughs> Another example, he had one wife, at least two girlfriends, and six kids between all of them. It's indeterminate how many girlfriends. But in any case, that is as com- it was as complicated as you might imagine. Right. According to Texas Monthly, when Stanford's wife visited Antigua, She was allowed to go only certain places and was always escorted by security guards, ostensibly to protect her from kidnapping, but also to prevent an encounter with one of his girlfriends. Perfect. That's that's a solid relationship right there. I mean, he's from Texas, but out here in Utah, people with one wife and at least two girlfriends, they're known as polygamists. Indeed. So and we did a whole episode on them. We sure did. Yeah. Alan Stanford had an untold number of private jets, but at least six, uh, according to the New Yorker article, the the writer Alec Wilkinson reported in his story that he got a tour of Stanford's hangar and that there were, quote, two small jets and one the size of a commercial liner, all of them looking as if they had just been polished. The floor of the hangar looked as clean as that of an operating room. Several planes were elsewhere. The attendant said Stanford, he added, had the largest private jet fleet in the world which that's <sighs> that's a huge showboat thing i think i've mentioned on the podcast that's before super showboaty that my my ex-wife's uncle was a a private pilot for um yes the oracle guy what's the name larry ellison larry ellison yeah La- when rich larry, guy yeah. super rich guy but didn't as far as i know i mean he he maybe had a couple of private jets and yeah. i'll tell you what like uh the 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 my ex-wife's uncle told me just the finances involved with owning a private jet where it's like, it's not just that it costs w- like what? $7 million, $9 million, something right. to buy the jet, but yep. then you're paying a, a large, a large amount of that annually just to maintain Store it the thing. and to house it and to have yeah. a staff to fly it. And also, yep. so like, it's not just that the initial outlay, it's the, it's, it's a, it's a money pit that you're consistently throwing stuff into just having Absolutely. one. And this guy had the largest private jet fleet in the world and he was number 205. Yeah. Yep. Bad choices. Alan, Sir Alan Stanford, yeah. if that is yeah. your real name. And I have to say, as far as billionaire showboats are concerned, Larry Ellison is up there. He's no slouch. Yeah, true. Right. Exactly. Yeah. (laughs) But also he was, you know, at one point, I don't think anymore, but at one point he was number three on that list, not number 205. So we had like, I think Larry Ellison probably at his peak could buy and sell Stanford, Alan Stanford 
dozens of times over. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Anyway, no way. Like, let's not get caught up in the numbers. <laughs> anyway, right. what you else know, we got? Oh, comparison. Comparison is the is the uh, what's the what's the quote? Comparison kills joy. There's something like that, and we don't we don't need to k- kill Alan Stanford's joy by comparing him <laughs> to Larry That's Ellison. Right. That's right. <laughs> uh what else we got oh his mansion on saint croix he lived on saint croix mind you he i don't think from all i could tell he did not live in antigua his house was actually on saint croix nice and he also owned an airline an airline he owned an airline okay um a newspaper and a couple of uh restaurants as well but (laughs) and a couple of restaurants just a you know a couple a couple taco bell franchises nobody yeah i I mean what did he do did he just have the whole restaurant to himself like i wonder what he did you know probably like clear the hey boys make sure the place is cleared out i'm coming in for dinner right right and make sure my wife doesn't i'm I'm bringing a girlfriend so make sure my wife (laughs) right don't let my wife in okay thanks yeah yeah only only doordash for the missus tonight (laughs) (laughs) yeah all right, but I have to say the most hilarious and also shrewd bit of lavishness was that Stanford reportedly spent 65 to 70 million dollars on cricket in the Caribbean. Yes, cricket, a global sport with billions of fans that most Americans would be shocked to know even existed. Wait, they'd be shocked to know that that the billions of fans existed or that the game of <laughs> cricket existed. Probably both. Probably both, but yeah, I Yeah. Cricket's one of those games that you know i'm sure i'm sure people who have never been familiarized with american football watch the game and go these rules are the weird i don't understand they don't make any sense and we just know it because we've been watching it since we were kids yes cricket feels like that to me where it's like yes i don't know anything that's happening all right stanford first got into cricket around 2005 his main interest being for its marketing potential. Which is so weird because, again, we go, what marketing potential? No one watches cricket, but we're just thinking that's a very uh, American-centric view of it. Indeed. Yeah. Marketing potential, you know. And mostly this is marketing potential for himself. Right. So he assembled the best players from the Caribbean on his team called the Stanford superstars which again beautiful it's not the antigua superstars it's not the uh, superstars of the caribbean <laughs> but it's the stanford superstars super classy yeah now if you're not familiar with cricket and i'm betting you're not i am not and our listeners aren't either because the majority are <laughs> our, our international audience is very small uh growing um, growing all the time growing yes. right right but i have to say it's mostly in English speaking countries. So, uh, true. Britain, Australia, these are places where people like cricket. So true. Apologies to you fans who are yelling at us. I'm yeah. sure we will be issuing corrections on your behalf in the very near future. Yes. Now for those not familiar with cricket, a typical test match, which is the classic version of the game can last up to five days. <laughs> you heard that right. Listeners who've literally never given this sport a second thought. Matches can last up to five days. <laughs> one one entire work week. Yeah. Crazy. That's a nice way of putting it. You're going to say I have to come into work on a test match? Not everyone loved this aspect of cricket. So in 2002, a newer, shorter vision was introduced called 2020. Now, a typical 2020 match is over in about two and a half hours. And so... Its popularity spread rather quickly, especially in India, where there are more cricket fans than there are people in Great Britain altogether. Stanford threw his support behind this newer, much shorter version of the game, and this made him a hero in Antigua and really across the Caribbean, and uh, it made him a giant villain in the UK. <laughs> gotcha. So the the UK was like, didn't we just kick you out? Of- Wait. Now you're doing this? The guy? What? Wait. Is the same guy? Bank the guy? hell? I Is it in cricket now? Huh? Anyway, Stanford's cricket obsession and hilariously brazen self-promotion reached its peak when he organized a match between the English national team and the Stanford superstars. The winners got 20 million. The losers got nothing. When the match was announced, he even landed in a gold leaf trimmed helicopter 
at Lord's Cricket Ground with the 20 million in a plexiglass case to promote the event. So he didn't have a gold elevator escalator that he came. He he was in a full on gold helicopter with a glass box with twenty million dollars of cash inside. That's that's uh, showboat. The, exactly showboat. Case in point. Check in, mate. Showboat. <laughs> Take that, Larry Ellison. <laughs> The match occurred in November 2008, and I'll spare you the suspense. Uh, the Stanford superstars won big, and the English were not happy about it. Hey, folks, Caleb Newquist here, co-host of Oh My Fraud. If you're an advertiser or marketer who wants to reach an engaged audience of accounting and finance professionals, why not advertise on Oh My Fraud? Use our self-service ad platform to browse our inventory and book the slots that fit your marketing budget. From there, it will only be a matter of time before you hear us telling our listeners your company's story. Head over to ohmyfraud.com slash sponsor to get your campaign started. That's ohmyfraud.com slash sponsor. Stanford International Bank's number one product was its certificates of deposit. Yep, CDs, the same thing that your grandparents might have given you for your birthday when you were a kid. Uh, did your did your grandparents give you nah, any CDs? My my, my grandparents, uh, <laughs> they were they were not exactly you know. I wouldn't describe them as affluent. So my, yeah, I, my I my, my grandparents CDs. were more treasury uh, treasury notes. Treasury uh, bonds. Kind of, yeah. Like yeah, a $10 tre- where it's like, here's a $10 treasury bond. And if you cash this in, in five years, it'll be worth $10 and 50 cents. And it's like, okay, <laughs> I'm cents. cashing it in tomorrow. So yeah. Yeah. Uh, Stan- Stanford, but, but here's the thing. Stanford CDs weren't any ordinary CDs. Stanford CDs were based in Antigua and they paid three to 4% more than any CD paid in the U S. Oh, the bank had been offering these CDs for more than a decade uh, by 2007 when it started a big expansion. And around this time, the bank started pushing its advisors to sell a lot more of these these CDs than its other products. And the advisors were told that they would make 30 percent more selling CDs at Stanford than at their previous jobs. So first off, we're saying these CDs have a, a reasonably high interest rate compared to other CDs. And then the other thing is it's like, and they got a huge commission for the brokers who are selling them. So those are some pretty powerful financial instruments, uh, that being the case. The bank, Stanford International Bank, would put on competitions, paying individuals and teams big bonuses for selling the most CDs. The added bonus was that these products were good for customers because they were safe. Stanford CDs could be cashed in at any time, which is weird. Another way, another thing that differentiated them from normal certificates of deposit. Uh, Then, around the time he peaked on the Forbes billionaires list, Stanford was also named World Finance Magazine's Man of the Year. And in an interview for that award, here's how uh, Alan, Sir Alan Stanford described his philosophy on his business. He says, quote, the Stanford philosophy for investing is based on diversification across global regions, countries, markets, asset classes, products, and sectors with the assumption that risk can be minimized while maximizing return. Now, if you hear that and think uh, that's quite a bus- blustery word salad of nonsense, uh, yeah, you're absolutely right. That's totally a blustery word salad of nonsense. Or it's just something that like a first year finance, if you're like, how, how would you address it? You know, it's like like a, your finance professor gives you the, the dumb project of saying, write your acceptance speech for <laughs> yeah. World Finance Magazine. <laughs> Yeah, the year and how you got that. And they'd be like, oh, well, I guess we'd be diversifying across global regions, countries, markets, asset classes, projects, and sectors. Is that it? Sound, that yes. sounds good. Well, 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 we simultaneously uh, 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 minimizing risk and maximizing returns. Right. That sounds good. Okay. Just yeah. send it in. Yeah. <laughs> Does that sound like ChatGPT wrote it? No. Good. Send it. <laughs> yeah. Well, yep. 
despite these conspicuous hallmarks of success, some other things around Stanford's empire didn't feel quite right, including to some insiders of the company. The Texas Monthly article that we've been talking about features a couple of Stanford financial advisors named Charlie Rawl and Mark Tidwell, uh, and they had lots of questions. Here's a passage from the piece explaining some of their worries. It says, uh, why, for instance, was the auditor of a bank with a supposed $8 billion in assets a one-man firm located over a hair salon in London? When Tidwell asked permission to notify clients who had invested in the CD about forms they were supposed to submit to the IRS, he was told by a supervisor to forget about it because the company didn't give tax advice. Sometime later, Tidwell and Raw learned that Stanford didn't issue 1099 forms to clients so that they could report the value of their investment income to the IRS. Collecting that data was supposedly the client's responsibility. But it's not. Does that strike you as weird? It it does. Uh, well, it yes, no, but yes. But no, it. it I mean, well, here's the thing. 1099s are just show the IRS how much to tax you, not yeah. so much you to to make sure that you're not underreporting your income. So so I get I see it both ways because I do see on the one hand they at least better be getting statements to people saying yeah, how that's much what that, I mean yeah. But 1099s it's not the client's responsibility to chase them down for those things. Right. Right. Exactly. Now, here's the only thing that I'm saying, though, is I get I get plenty of 1099s every year, and sure. I just keep track of them and add them up just to verify that my records that I've been keeping separately from them are accurate. Yeah. Does that yeah. make sense? Do you see what I'm saying? So, sure. I'm, so, yeah. so I so I kind of see it from that perspective, but I also go, no, no, no. The IRS requires you as a institution to file 1099. So I don't know how they got around it from that from that side of things. Right. Yeah. So, but not good. Regardless, yes. basic tax documentation and compliance documents seem like table stakes for any bank. So, I mean, we all have banking relationships and we all get far too much tax, do- more tax documentation than we probably need, more documentation in general than we probably need from our banks. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so, yeah, red flag for sure. A couple more things that would probably concern anyone who was paying attention. First, in May of 2005, the SEC wanted information on the bank's CD program. Uh, Management told everyone that the request was routine, uh, so no big deal. But then they also told assistants and advisors to remove any information that wasn't on Stanford International Bank Lenderhead from their clients' files. Uh, all clients' notes and inner office emails and so on. So they had a real uh, Enron-style shred party at the uh, the old Stanford <laughs> International Bank. Just prior, yeah, yeah, you know, like it's very much an Enron very, style. Right before, right before the SEC shows up, let's just shred everything that's not that's sketchy. Yeah, very standard which operating is, procedure, which is very sketchy. Uh, And also, around the same time, clients started complaining that a mutual fund program's returns were not matching the returns claimed in the company's pitch books. A consultant even came in and recommended that Stanford, quote, admit that the returns that they were claiming prior to January 2006 were incorrect. All bets are off as far as accuracy goes, he said, and no one can even verify it. That's pretty damning. Not good. Not good at all. But all that happened as a result of all of this was some comically small fines imposed by the SEC and the Financial Industry Regulatory Authority, a.k.a. FINRA, but nothing internally changed. Tidwell and Rawl were nervous, and so they got themselves and their clients out by the end of 2007. But because they'd raised concerns internally for Stanford and his empire, The bank claimed that Tidwell and Rawl had been fired when, in fact, they had quit, and the bank sued Tidwell and Rawl for $600,000 in advances that they claimed Tidwell and Rawl needed to repay to the bank. But then the SEC subpoenaed Rawl and Tidwell in July of 2008, and around the same time, 2007-2008, Stanford was boasting about his business's resilience to the Great Recession that we all remember was going on at that time. 
Stanford was quoted as saying, we haven't been caught up in all that subprime mortgage fiasco. We're very bullish on making a lot of money in the next 20 years. In January 2009, just two months after the Stanford superstars defeated the English national team in that goddamn spectacle of a cricket match, Alan Stanford, his CFO, Jim Davis, and the firm's chief investment officer, Laura Pendergast-Holt, reported to employees that the company had just received a, quote, capital infusion of $541 million. When the Madoff scandal broke, which was just around the same time, some investors asked about any connection, but Stanford reassured them that they had no exposure. But the SEC was still knocking on the door in January 2009 with subpoenas. Stanford and Davis refused to cooperate, but sent Pendergast Holt and another executive to testify about the bank's operations. One lawyer reported back to Stanford executives that the commission, quote, wanted to be reassured that the bank is real, the CDs are real, that the money is actually invested as described in our documents, and that client funds in CDs are safe and secure. Right. So it's kind of like, hey, so you say you're a bank, but do you do anything that the banks do? Like, do you do, like, you do any banking are there, things? Are you, listen, I'm super high right now. Are you real? Are, <laughs> is, it, is any of this real? That's yeah, what's... What's real here? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> not great. No, no, not, not at all. And if you think that sounds bad, then you're going to love this. In February 2009, one of the bank's executives asked Jim Davis about the $541 million capital injection that they supposedly received in November. When they dug into it, the only thing that showed up was a transfer of real estate worth $88 million, quote, from one Stanford company to another. That, Craig Kite, in the business is known as a intercompany transaction. Right. And they are sometimes not legitimate. Yeah. They're, and, or, I mean, or it is worth a way. looking closer. If it you, is. A, if you if you look at such things, then you should take another look. Right. And it's a way to inject capital, but it's also a way to remove capital from your other business. So, right. E- yeah. Even if it's not suspect, it's, it's not a real not a quality play. It's not, it's not improving your overall position at all. So it's just, right. you know, rearranging the, you know, the deck chairs. You got it. As the SEC continued to apply pressure, more people within the bank kept asking questions. And eventually Davis and Pendergast Holt explained that the assets were held in three tiers. And it was this third tier that the majority of assets, nearly $8 billion were held. But what they actually showed wasn't anything close to $8 billion. Pendergast Holt could only substantiate $3 billion in assets and a $1.6 billion loan to shareholder. That shareholder, of course, was Sir Alan Stanford. On February 17, 2009, federal agents showed up to Stanford offices in Texas, Mississippi, and Tennessee and accused Stanford of running a massive ongoing fraud. As the media began to look into the mythic story of Sir Alan Stanford, everything began to fall apart. Uh, remember the Baylor football scholarship? Baylor had no record of it. Stanford also claimed that his business started all the way back to his grandfather's insurance company during the Depression, but that wasn't true either. His grandfather sold that business. And we haven't mentioned up to this point, but Alan Stanford boasted for many years that he was actually related to the founder of Stanford University, Leland Stanford, and Alan Stanford claimed to have genealogy records to prove it. Also, according to The Guardian, he went so far as to fund the restoration of Leland Stanford's mansion in Sacramento Stanford University said otherwise, saying they had no record of any connection and sued Alan Stanford for trademark infringement as he was using his name in marketing virtually everywhere. Oh, and the claim that Stanford had no ties to Madoff, uh, that was all bullshit too. There was exposure to Madoff investments and, quote, most of the financial figures were made up. Yeah. (laughs) The Madoff stuff, I think virtually all of it was made up. Right. Which is... Right. 
Don't use that. Oh, but you know, no big deal because remember those super safe, uh, super liquid CDs? Yeah. Yeah. The bank had mostly invested that money into real estate and private equity, which is pretty much the exact opposite of a liquid investment. $8 billion in assets were unaccounted for, and when the authorities showed up to Stanford offices in February of 2009, uh, Alan Stanford was also unaccounted for. Uh, it turned, Yeah, he, he, he disappeared. Poof. He was also a close-up magician. But he turned up a couple days later at a girlfriend's house near Fredericksburg, Virginia, where he was served with civil legal papers filed by the SEC. Allen had tried to flee the country on the 17th, but when he tried to pay for his private flight to Antigua with a credit card, he got turned down because they only accepted wire transfers. Oh, yeah. And apparently he just didn't have that kind of scratch. Just, you know, not liquid. Darn. So hate it when that happens. Uh, yeah. That happens. You know, you're trying to flee the country and they don't accept your credit card. Bullshit. Come on. Come on. Come it's on. A, it's a, it's a capital one venture card. <laughs> right. Guys. Right. That's what's in my wallet. Uh, yeah. Sam Alan, Jackson, Sam yeah. Jackson, everybody. Yeah. Come on. Jennifer Garner. What's it's the all, problem? how can it not be legit? Alan Stanford was arrested on June 18th, 2009 by the FBI. He was charged in a Houston courtroom a week later with seven counts of wire fraud, 10 counts of mail fraud, conspiracy to obstruct an investigation for the SEC, obstruction of an investigation by the SEC, and conspiracy to commit money laundering. You know what? Uh, Do we just double up on obstruction? No, no, because he was... He he was charged with conspiracy to obstruct, and he was also charged with actually obstruct. So it's like, hey, hey guys, let's let's obstruct, and then they actually did it. So that's two different crimes, man. Yeah. So he got he got charged with both. They brought the they brought the hammer down on the hammer mofo. down. Yep. Yeah. All right. Like most of what surrounded Alan Stanford, everything that followed was also a spectacle. So. Caleb, you and I are going to go through a rundown of what happened after his arrest. Yes, we are. Okay. On June 25th, 2009, Alan Stanford pleaded not guilty to the charges. On August 27th, 2009, he was admitted to the hospital after complaining about a racing heart during his transfer from a prison to the courthouse to a hearing where his lawyer was asking to withdraw from his case. (laughs) <laughs> on September 26, 2009, he was hospitalized again after being beaten by a fellow inmate. In January 2011, the judge in his case ruled that Stanford was unfit to stand trial because of a raging addiction to anti-anxiety medication. The judge still deemed Stanford a flight risk, however, and he was not released from custody, and he was ordered to undergo treatment for his addiction so that he could stand trial. In May 2011, seven of the charges against Stanford were dropped. In November of 2011, Stanford's attorneys argued that he was still unfit to stand trial due to amnesia sustained from his injuries. But then in December 2011, the judge found Stanford fit to stand trial after he spent months weaning off the medication he was taking. Stanford's trial actually finally began. On January 24th, 2012, he was convicted after a six-week trial. Prosecutors sought a 230-year sentence, the maximum allowable under law. This was 80 years more than Bertie Madoff's sentence, which was only 150 years. Ultimately, Stanford was sentenced to 110 years in prison on June 14th, 2012, and ordered to forfeit $5.9 billion. At his sentencing, Stanford spoke for the first time during the proceedings and said that he never swindled anyone and that his company was the victim of Gestapo tactics by government regulators. Stanford filed a 299-page brief appealing his conviction in September 2014 with the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals. It was denied. 
In 2016, Stanford gave a jailhouse interview to the BBC where he maintained his innocence, repeatedly said that his conviction will be thrown out and that he will walk out of prison one day. Here's a quote from Stanford. He says, I know it's going to happen, so it's not a dream. It's reality. It's right around the corner. So yes, I think about it very, very often, and I have a smile on my face, and I know it's going to happen, and I feel very confident it's going to happen very, very soon. I think Donald Trump is going to say that exact same speech from jail during an interview with the BBC sometime very soon. I think you're right. Yeah. The uh, interview is a yeah. little sidebar. That interview is quite something. There's a link in the show notes. Uh, just how delusional he is about the whole thing. Uh, at another point, he said, quote, I lived very modestly in terms of how I could have lived. Um, uh, I could go on, but we don't have time. Please read that interview. It is something. Um, <laughs> the, fi- the final thing that we'll just note uh, here with the 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 criminal justice element is that Stanford wasn't the only person who went down. Jim Davis, the CFO, Laura Pendergast Holt, the chief investment officer, Gilbert T. Lopez Jr., the chief accounting officer, Mark J. Kurt, the global controller. They were all convicted of or pleaded guilty to criminal charges as well, and they all were sentenced to prison time. Lopez and Kurt are still serving their sentences, uh, while Davis and Pendergast Holt have been released. As for the victims in this case, there were thousands, around 18,000 to be exact, according to a 2019 CNBC article. The final tally on Stanford's Ponzi scheme put it at over $7 billion that he had been running for 20 years. Recent reporting has stated that recovery of assets for the victims has been slow and of limited success. Uh, In February of 2023, the Stanford receiver, that's the person trying to recover the money, settled with TD Bank for $1.2 billion, bringing the reported recoveries to $1.6 billion, which when you do the math, that's less than $0.25 recovered for every dollar lost. Yeah, not a good good return on your investment. (laughs) The Allen Stanford case has been compared obviously, to Bertie Madoff's Ponzi scheme a lot. Uh, They happened around the same time. Remember, Madoff was revealed in December 2008. Stanford's was in February 2009. Uh, They were the two largest investment frauds, and by that, I mean the largest Ponzi schemes in history. But while Madoff's scheme dwarfed Stanford's, Stanford's was arguably further reaching and more complex due to the convoluted international structure to it all. And as far as anyone can tell, that was by design. Mimi Schwartz wrote in that Texas Monthly article that uh, the international press made Stanford out to be a yahoo, a flamboyant Texas, a high-flying Texas billionaire, But he was, in fact, a shrewd, calculating man who had given a lifetime of thought to his enterprise. As for the rest of his lifetime, Alan Stanford will do all his thinking inside U.S. Penitentiary Coleman II. The Bureau of Prison Records show his release date will be March of 2103. Okay, Greg, did we learn anything? Yeah, I there's there's one thing that that really stuck out to me about oh. this case, and and again, it's it's sort of the the compare and contrast between, uh, well, I guess not just between Stanford's Ponzi scheme and Madoff's Ponzi scheme, but also just Ponzi schemes in general, because because here's what we know: if we know anything about Ponzi schemes, the biggest red flag is that the people who are perpetrating them promise these ridiculously high rates of return. Yep. And as a matter of fact, uh, I, I looked it up to make sure that I had the, the facts right. Uh, Charles Ponzi, after whom Ponzi schemes were named, he had a Ponzi scheme that related to, like postage stamps. And yeah. he, he was promising people that they could get a 50% return within a few months. So not just a 50% annual return, but just you know, probably at least a hundred percent annual return if you annualized it. So, right. so that, so if you're if you're talking about a rate that's clearly good, too good to be true, Charles Ponzi's Ponzi scheme was that. But 
we've talked about this before on prior prior episodes that uh, Madoff was different with his Ponzi scheme because he promised a 10.5% annual return. Right. And and he was able to hit that for like decades and that which and so so a 10.5% annual return. That's not astronomical. That's not that nope. in, in and of itself not a red flag. But hitting that consistently for for decades that's what's what's uh, uh you know on the far bounds of statistically possible so um so again kind of makes it a too good to be true thing when you look at it at a whole but here's what i think really sets apart stanford's ponzi scheme is if you remember his cds they he was just claiming that you get a you get a certificate of deposit and what you're getting with me you're going to get three to four percent better rate than you would with any cd that you get in the united states now i looked at i looked at the rates for cds between 1991 which is when he started his bank in i think that's when he started the bank in montserrat and was that montserrat or was that no he started the month that's when he moved to antigua that's when he moved okay so let's say from what so that's when stanford international bank started yes and the cds were the the primary uh you know financial instrument of stanford international yes Bank. yes, yes. Mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. the the cd rates from 1991 to pre to to, to 2023 were at the highest were like six and a half percent so wow. if you had you have three to four percent on top of that you're saying at the very top that the highest rate he was ever given was the madoff rate but then yeah, right. also you get down to there was a period of time where cds were were trash and were given like like one tenth of a percent interest, right? That, yeah, and so you go, yeah. okay. So if you're given three, so his, if you're given three percent above that, that's still at that time that was unheard of. Yeah, I mean, you remember when it's like, if you own a savings account, you're an idiot, kind of. Yeah, kinda right. Thing. Yeah, because it's, it's not making you any money at all. So, um, so if he's doing three three percent, that's what like his bottom was three percent, his top was ten and a half percent. So here's what makes that all interesting to me is. If you have, if you're claiming that you're giving a 50% return within months, because the whole idea is you're not really investing it, you're just getting new investors and paying the old ones what you promised them with new money. So if you're Charles Ponzi, you have to come up with a ton of new investors to pay off what you promised to the old investors. You with me? I am. If you're made off, you're not given a 50% return within months you're given a 10 and a half percent annual return you still need a bunch of investors to pay off the old investors but a whole lot less now if you're and which is why purportedly madoff was able to perpetuate his, pro, his fraud for so long but now look at stanford he has to only give returns of three percent to ten percent at the highest he doesn't need nearly as many new investors as these other Ponzi schemes to be able to, to keep it going. But he was making this huge push to just sell them, sell them, sell them. This is what you need to sell. Go out and get more money. So I, I think that's a, a very interesting thing because, again, I wouldn't say that the rates that he was flaunting for his instruments were in the red flag territory because, again, you're talking about C- – like everybody goes, okay, I understand CDs here in the United States. But somebody says, hey yep. – Get one from this bank in Antigua, a, a tax haven, and you can get three to four percent more. And you go, oh, okay, I guess that kind of makes sense because if they don't have to pay taxes, whatever, maybe that yep. okay. And it's not, it's not fifteen percent, it's not eighteen percent, it's not twenty five percent. It's maybe six percent, and it's like, okay, all right, I can, I can buy that. So you don't have the same red flag that you have with other Ponzi schemes. I thought that was, I thought that for me that was. I don't know. Can I say that was the coolest thing about this Ponzi scheme? <laughs> yeah. Is that- I mean, in terms of like, in terms of trying not to attract attention, you have to say like, that is the thing that Alan Stanford, that kind of cuts against his brand, right? Like he was doing things, even though the rates, the CD rates were beating, you know, were far exceeding US rates. Right. And they were probably marketing those pretty aggressively. It wasn't as though... He, he was he was showing some restraint in terms of like what he promised to return to investors. Yeah, yeah. But again, I think that goes that goes back to um to the quote uh from the Texas Monthly article that he that he was in fact a very shrewd, very calculating man because 
again, on the one hand, like you said, it shows restraint that he was like, oh, yeah, on my CDs, you're going to get 3% return instead of 0.1%. But then the other thing is, you go, you know what the difference is in degrees of magnitude between 0.1% and 3%? Yeah. That's like, that's, I mean, do the math. It's a lot. I'm not going to do it right now. Uh, cool. Couple of things that I have on my mind about this. As of this recording, it has been 15 years this month since the fraud was revealed, and there's still litigation going on trying to recover funds for victims. Yeah. Uh, so that is insane to me. Um, and it just goes to show how uh, kind of the long lasting impact that fraud, uh, an, especially, an especially large fraud like this one, yeah. can have on the victims. There are people out there to this day right now trying to get their money back. Right. So that's rough. Uh, the other thing I learned was from around the time of Stanford sentencing, there's this article in the New York times about how judges around that time were seeing these big financial crimes and they were, you know, they, this notion of economic homicide. And so this devastating impact on victims was a considerable factor in the sentences imposed on people like Stanford and Bertie Madoff and some others. And yeah, um, yeah, that one's in the show notes as well. It's a, it's a good read. It, you know, it's from, it's from 15 years ago. So it, it's kind of a, it's definitely a snapshot mm-hmm. in time of like what was going on. Cause there were a lot of financial crimes being revealed at that yeah. time. Yeah. 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 Mortgage, cri- mortgage, mortgage crisis and Ponzi schemes and all kinds of stuff. So, yeah. um, yeah. pretty interesting stuff. The, so, the other thing, so let me, let me oh, ask yeah. you a question. Cause I didn't, Please? I didn't read this. I did not read the article about uh financial eco- or economic homicide, economic what, homicide. What, mm-hmm. what, the idea being that you've like, you're basically you've ruined someone's life. Yes. Because yes. you stole uh, which makes sense because that was yeah. that was the big heartbreaking thing about like even about Enron and also obviously about Madoff was you've got these people whose life savings or their yes. entire retirement accounts were just they just vanished and yeah. and and if you're already retired you're not going to be able to get another job to replenish that money or to to make ends meet so is that kind of the idea that it's like you did this fraud and it ruined a lot of people it, it destroyed a lot of people's lives it essentially destroyed people's lives yeah okay. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yep. yep. That's economic that's homicide. Precisely the premise. And wow. I don't know if there's anything official about that. It, like, I don't think there's, you'd have to do some more digging to see if there's actual, like, if that's an accepted kind of like premise or notion or within right. the legal world. I, I, I didn't get that sense, but the impact of the crimes are essentially as if you are right. <laughs> murdering that person in right. a, in a in an economic sense. Well, I mean in, in which which, which makes sense heavy. because it's it's not hard to do the thought experiment of like okay. Oh no. You're so so hey Caleb, it you're you're 70 years old. You've yeah. long since retired. You're yes. you're so irrelevant now cuz you're 70. <laughs> so and and oops, now you've got nothing your entire right. nest egg is gone. Here's here's your $2000 a month social security payment. So yeah. good and luck. Yeah, you're getting a job. You're getting a job yeah. wherever you can. Yeah, it, but that's the thing. Maybe you couldn't even get a job. My, I'm listen. Not. We've talked about this. I'm 51 and I'm getting my hip replaced in the near f- future. So I think when I'm 71, good times. I'm gonna be. This guy's in a wheelchair at best. So no, you're gonna have a brand new hip. You'll have uh, like well, your hip will only be 20 years old. Yeah, yeah. I'll be in. Okay, so right now a you're on a 50 year old hip, Greg. Is that is that it? Okay. That's yeah, true. Sure. That's true. Okay. I like your positivity. I'm saying that I will be That's decrepit and that even greeting at Walmart <laughs> would be a challenge for me. Yeah. Right. So. Yeah. Anyway, the other thing about this story, which I knew going in, but was kind of underscored again as I kind of revisited it, uh, was that this story had quite a bit of coverage despite it being overshadowed by the Madoff story. Yeah. Because this, these they were essentially happening concurrently, right? So, I guess for the listeners who are just interested in this story, there is a lot more out there. Like, like we weren't able to get into all the, right. the details of this story. We we covered a lot of them, but like, there's other stuff out there uh, that are, are less critical to the you know the kind of the big beats of the story. It's just I don't know. It's it's a fascinating case. Yeah. So hopefully we did it justice. Yeah. Um, and so yeah. I'm going to say 
unequivocally, we did it. We did it justice. Well, that's it for this episode. Uh, and remember, offshore banking is shady enough. No need to go around doing actual shady stuff and ruining it for everybody else. And also remember, only a Texas blowhard would launder dirty money through cricket. Run your dodgy plunder through rugby or hurling or Batoshi instead. <laughs> yeah. Do that. You familiar with Batoshi? None of that. Look that no. Her, Please cur- do. Cur- Please mean, look that up. Did you mean curling instead of hurling? Nope. 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 Okay. Hurling is a sport too. Also yeah. not familiar with that in the least. <laughs> yeah. Check out check out Batoshi. Okay. Is that's a type of martial arts, right? Eh, no. Okay. I mean, maybe, except okay. it involves 150 people playing an extremely violent version of oh. Capture the Flag. Oh, well, so it does sound a little bit like martial arts. Uh, <laughs> maybe without the elegance. Okay. <laughs> Okay. I'm telling you, man, I am telling you, find some YouTube. I I think that's how I'm going to get myself to sleep tonight is uh, (laughs) great. Just watching Batoshi videos on YouTube. Please, Uh, please report back. (laughs) If you want to drop us a line or if you would like us to send you a curated uh, recommendation of a Batoshi video, send us an email at ohmyfraud at earmarkcpe.com. Caleb, where can people find you out there in the internet wilderness? Uh, LinkedIn slash Caleb Newquist. <laughs> just that's all you said. LinkedIn. That's, How about <laughs> LinkedIn? You? Also yeah. LinkedIn. Yes. Just just LinkedIn. our names. Just LinkedIn. our names. You can do that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I'm on uh, LinkedIn. Greg Kite CPA. Oh my fraud is written by Greg Kite and myself. Our producer is Zach Frank. Rate, review, subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts. If you listen on Earmark, you will or you can. I don't say you will. If you don't take the quiz you won't get the cpe no, am i no. right greg you should you yeah. should get cpe credit you should get cpe if you listen on earmark yeah you do all the necessary things it's pretty easy yeah so if you want some cpe listen to earmark otherwise non-accountants whoever you are thank you the show join us next time for more average swindlers and scams from stories that will make you say oh, oh my, my fraud, fraud.